You know, part of my job as your pastor is to help all of us learn how to suffer for all the right reasons. There are plenty of wrong reasons to suffer, uh, but there are right reasons. And so how do we do that? How do we deal with the adversity for, for reasons that will lead others to show gratitude and thanksgiving and give God credit and worship Him? And, uh, you know, in order to do that, you've got to have a proper worldview. You've got to be able to see wreckage the way God sees wreckage. And I, when I mean wreckage, I'm talking about this. Here's another picture that I was uh, uh, given. Uh, now, this was the Gifford Parade, last 4th of July. There's the street then. And here is the street now, after the storm. So how do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of that? Well, in order to make sense of that, you, you make sense of that through a worldview. And you need a proper worldview. And when I mean worldview, I mean a worldview is a set of glasses through which you see life. And a worldview helps you interpret the stuff of life as it comes at you. A worldview help, helps you figure out the facts. You see, we never, you never respond simply based on facts. You don't. You respond based on your interpretation of the facts. And so we're constantly interpreting life as it comes to us. We're constantly seeking to find meaning and to sort it all out. And, and a worldview, and everybody has a worldview, so the question isn't, do I have one? The question is, which worldview? Which pair of glasses do I have? Well, I want to offer you a pair of glasses this morning, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 15. The Apostle Paul offers us a pair of glasses that will allow us to receive God's grace so that then we can respond to God's grace in gratitude, all for His glory. I want you to see, as I read these verses, a word picture. A word picture. We're gonna, it's going to hit us right in the first, first verse of this text. And I want us, to, want us to examine what this word picture is and unpack it. And then I want to talk about what it means and then how it applies to our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 Verses 7 through 11. It's page 965 of your church Bibles. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, 
so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence, for it is all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. This is God's word. Did you catch the word picture? You see it there? Verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay. There it is. Jars of clay. That's the worldview through which God wants us to interpret life as it comes at, uh, at us. You, you could call it the law of the clay jar. The law of the clay jar. You know, in the ancient world, uh, clay jars were very common. Household containers. Clay jars. You could fill them with water. You could fill them with wine, oil, grain. You could use clay jars for cooking, for eating, drinking, storing leftovers. Clay jars, they were convenient, they were expendable. Clay jars were as practical to Paul's world as Tupperware is to our world. The only difference is if you drop Tupperware, you can pick it back up. You drop a clay jar, you've got a mess. But that's okay, just get another one. Because they were common, mass-produced. And because they were so common... It was very common back then for people to hide their treasures in these clay jars, valuables, gold, because that's the least likely place that a thief would seek to find it. So a burglar would enter a house and see a row of clay jars, and there might be oil in one, water in another, grain in another, but a valuable in another. Well, which is it? Don't know. It looks so common. Blends right in. You'd never guess. I'm thinking of a gentleman by the name of Oliver Banks, who was at one time the British ambassador to the United States. And when Oliver Banks served England, he was in touch uh, almost daily with, uh, on one hand, our U.S. president. On the other hand, the prime minister of London. He often had to get urgent hush-hush messages back and forth between Washington and London. And, you know, he couldn't make telephone calls because, uh, you know, the line would almost certainly be bugged. He typically would use a diplomatic bag, which was uh, uh, ferried across the Atlantic every day. But when something was extremely top secret... Why, Ambassador Banks wouldn't even trust it to the diplomatic bag, which everybody knew was important. You know, what he would, you know what he would do? He would put it in an ordinary envelope and send it through regular mail. The utterly ordinary envelope held the utterly extraordinary message, the unremarkable houses the remarkable, the priceless treasure cloaked in cheap clay. 
That's what's behind verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Who are the jars of clay? We are. Paul says we have this treasure in jars of clay. Us. Paul says me. The church. Windsor Road Christian Church. We're the jars of clay which house this treasure. What's that? Oh, that's the treasure of the gospel. The pearl of great price. The good news that God does not wipe out rebels, but instead he enters our world in clay, in the person of Jesus Christ, for the purpose of rescuing us from the kingdom of darkness and planting us into his kingdom of light. That's the treasure. And in fact, 2 Corinthians 4.4 speaks of this treasure as, here we go, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So here's yet another layer to this clay jar word picture because clay jars would not only hold water or oil or grain, but some clay jars would hold light. They were lamps. And the sides of those jars were so thin, almost paper thin, that the light would shine through the wall of that jar and illuminate the room, giving light. And everybody knew, everybody knew that the jar did not produce the light, but merely held the light. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, verse 6, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Wow. The law of the clay jar. God made it that way. He designed it that way. Those clay jars may be fragile or breakable or disposable, but that's okay because it's the treasure. That's what matters most by design so that the content in the container might never be confused with the container itself. The messenger is never more important than the message. Why, if it were... Otherwise, the jars might consider themselves as important. And who wants that? Well, the Corinthians do. That's the problem. See, there's a story behind these verses here. And it has to do with our Christian ancestors in Corinthian, in the Corinthian church. It seems that they've been paying more attention to the cosmetics of clay instead of the contents therein. They've been paying attention to the envelope. They've they've been looking at the outer appearance of Paul's life, Paul's own public figure, his speaking style. And they're looking at the fact that he's been in and out of trouble and he's been in prison. He has hardships and experiences. And they've come to the conclusion that, well, there's really nothing remarkable about Paul. And that's not good. He needs help. We can help. He needs an image consultant. I'm not making this up. He ought to look more important than he appears, especially since he's an apostle and claims to have a divine message from the living God. I mean, they said as such, 2 Corinthians 10.10, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, as if they were qualified to judge an apostle. 
What's that about? Well, they were used to a particular style of communication, a style of Greek rhetoric. One aspect of this was when the speaker stood, and in order to prove himself to his audience, he would offer what a Plutarch called inoffensive self-praise. <laughs> It's ironic, isn't it? Inoffensive self-praise. Is there such a thing? Well, apparently they thought so. It was a form of sophisticated self-promotion about the speaker's struggles and how he stoically overcame them by his own effort. And as a part of this, he he would offer a catalog of hardship. A catalog of hardship. It was just bragging, that's what it was. But, but he, they had to do it in a way that didn't sound like they were bragging. It was very Greek, nuanced style of speaking. And they just thought Paul would be better off if, if, if he would speak and preach the way they wanted him to. Well, the problem was their way took the focus off Christ. I wonder if any of those ancestors are around here. I wonder if, there's, I wonder if we've gotten caught by the Corinthian virus. They've been circulating, paying too much attention to curb appeal, being too concerned about trying to spiffy up the clay jar rather than nurturing and enjoying the treasure therein. Uh, I'm not saying stop exercising, okay? I'm not saying that. I'm not saying, I'm not... You know, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying OD on eggnog the next 40 days. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that is it possible that in our culture that, 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 that you know, there's a Corinthian virus that, you know, causes us to neglect the truth that this life is not all there is. There is a life to come. What did, what did we hear earlier in one of the voices of Gifford? Why do we keep all this stuff anyway? Well, Paul's not going to have any of that. He's not. And in verses 8 and 9, he, he's so good. So he says, okay, I'll play your game. I'll offer the catalog of hardship. Yet he does so in a way that totally takes the focus off of him, which is what they don't want to happen, and he puts it on Christ. You want me to brag? I'll brag, but I'm going to brag about Jesus. That's how it's going to work. And so he does in verses 8 and 9. He says, and I like how one scholar translates verses 8 and 9, we are squeezed but not squashed, bewildered but not befuddled, persecuted but not abandoned, we are knocked down but not knocked out. And what's his point? His point is that God works his strength through our weakness and frailty to show that the power is his power, not our power. God's grace flows best through the broken lives of those who serve others in his name. That's the point. That's why, that's why Paul says what he says in verses 10 through 12. He says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. And actually, there's a better word than the word death. It's the word killing always carrying around in the body the killing of Jesus, you see? So so Paul's life is an example of Christ giving himself up on the cross for the sake of others. His life is the very reenactment 
of Jesus. As, as Daniel Day-Lewis put on the, the persona of our former president, Lincoln, and the garb, and, the, and see, Paul puts on Christ. It's very reenactment. And that's what made him an effective leader. It wasn't, his, it wasn't his handsome features. It wasn't his telegenic smile. It wasn't his facial symmetry. In fact, if, um, you know, if what we know about Paul based on a second century document is true, he really wasn't that impressive at all. According to a late second century description of Paul, he was a man short in stature with a bald head or shaved head, bowed legs, uh, uh, in good condition or you know, stoutly built. He had eyebrows that met. <laughs> a fairly large crooked nose. The, uh, the mighty apostle Paul. <laughs> That said, when Paul preached, when he wrote Scripture, when he reasoned and argued for the sake of Christ, the Spirit of God moved in such a miraculous, extraordinary way that people could not but help come to the conclusion, this is of God. This is of God. The document goes on further and says at times he seemed human at other times he looked like an angel there it is we have this treasure in jars of clay there was an otherworldly grace that flowed from god through paul to others who then responded to god in grateful worship that's what's behind verse 15 when he says it's all for your sake So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. You you get the direction there? The grace of God falls down and gratitude to God rises up. Grace always descends from heaven to earth and gratitude always ascends from earth to heaven. In fact, and this is beautiful, grace and gratitude in the New Testament language of Greek are from the same word family. Grace. Charis, gratitude, Eucharist. Grace falls that gratitude may rise. God always does it this way. The extraordinary through the ordinary. The remarkable through the unremarkable. Treasures in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not us. That's the law of the clay jar. Now, how might that look in our life? Well, how does the law of the clay jar look? How does that show up? How does that help us think? Well, it helps us, first of all, think clearly about who we are. It helps us have a proper perspective. It helps us have a, a, a very realistic look at ourselves. Paul was very realistic about himself. He knows who he is. He know, he, and he's willing to acknowledge his weaknesses. He's willing to look at them and deal with them. Now, I've, I've benefited in the past from a book called Now Discover Your Strengths. And it's all about really focusing on your strengths and what you do well, etc. Well, while I've benefited from that, 
The Apostle Paul might have another take on that idea. His book would be, now discover your weaknesses. Discover your frailty. Discover your limits. Discover where you're most likely going to be tempted. So Paul admits this. He's not really apologizing for the limitations of of being a clay jar. Rather, he's openly confessing and admitting that he has shortcomings, he's not perfect, and that the gospel comes by way of wounded healers. And that, I think, is what's been so powerful about what's going on at Gifford, that see the, the healing is being done by wounded healers. And some of us know all about that. Like when you're on your feet all day long, helping the hurting and homeless people in a storm-ravaged town. Or like when you show up at a a critical care unit to sit with a family while they watch their beautiful child slip into the arms of Jesus. Like when you need to perform three funerals in one week. and When you're at your wit's end about what to do about your son or daughter and there's just no fix in sight or or when you're dealing with a child that has special needs or a parent who just can't care for themselves and and, and in any of these scenarios, you quickly learn that you have limits. You have emotional limits. You have spiritual limits. You have physical limits. Yet somehow in the wake of those limits, God shows up. And the power of the gospel appears and you can't explain it. It's in our woundedness that we see and witness God's life-changing grace. It's in our woundedness. This week's going to be hard for some of us. It just is. It's going to be hard. There's going to be an ache from loss. The loss of a loved one. The loss of a marriage. The loss from family separation. Maybe through a deployment. Maybe the loss of a job. And now, you know, it's the first Thanksgiving. Or it's it's the first Christmas. Or it's the first anniversary. And there is that ache. And yet in that ache, the law of the clay jar says that God can show up in unexpected ways and work even through your woundedness, to reach others so that they get curious about who he is. The law of the clay jar makes us realistic about ourselves. It also makes us realistic about the cost of ministry or the cost of serving others. I don't know. I look back about when I first entered ministry. So naive. So naive. This is going to be something that's going to be just full of warm fuzzies. So naive. Maybe you feel that way coming into a church family. I'm going to come into this church family. This is a wonderful community. It's going to be full of warm fuzzies. Listen, I, you know, I love you. Let me just tell you, Paul is being baldly realistic about ministry. In verses 8 and 9, Paul is admitting that ministry is killing him. 
And there's not a whiff of self-pity either. Not a whiff of self-pity when he says, we're afflicted in every way. We're perplexed. We're persecuted. Struck down. Not a whiff of self-pity. Just reality. And, and, And he's not saying that it's better to burn out than to rust out. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, you know, no, don't take your vacation. He's not saying that either. He's just saying that serving others in the name of Christ will cost you. It will cost you mentally. It'll cost you emotionally. It'll cost you physically. A scholar by the name of N.T. Wright was a good friend in the study with me this week. I love this quote. I put it on your outline. He, He said, if you want to see resurrection at work here and now in your own life, you have to be prepared to see crucifixion at work as well. See, you don't, you don't get Easter Sunday before Good Friday. That's not how it works. And, and for Paul, actually, his entire life was a three-day week. Really was. You and I, we have seven-day weeks. Not Paul. He lived in one of three days every day. Good Friday, crucifixion, Suffering, pain, perplexed, struck down. Good Friday, holy Saturday, silent, waiting, patient Saturday. You pray, but on silent Saturday, you can't hear anything. Because sometimes God just doesn't speak. He doesn't have to. Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday. Victory! The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Paul lived one of those three days all the time. And when he got to Easter Sunday, you kind of know what's coming next. Back to Friday. And his entire life in ministry and travels focused on one of those three days. And yet he makes it clear that whatever afflictions that he faces are for the Corinthians' comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, 6. The law of the clay jar asserts that whenever we experience hardship, why that's an opportunity to show God's life in the midst of death. And I can't help but think about uh, James Montgomery Boyce. James Montgomery Boyce was a minister of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, 32 years. Um, Wrote many books. One of his books, here's what he says. Listen up. Perhaps cancer or some other debilitating disease has invaded your body and you suspect that you do not have a very long time to live. What a waste, you're saying. Why can't I be strong and healthy and live a long, long life? Well, I don't know the answer to that. What God does with us in detail is not revealed in Scripture. It is one of the secret things that belong to God only. But that does not mean the painful path he calls you to walk has no purpose. It is how you conduct yourself in such wasting times That's the stuff of victory. And then he says this. He says, you know, set an example for us. 
by lifting your eyes from what is material and tangible and passing away and point us to him who is invisible and does everything well. Show us, show us how light and momentary these earthly troubles are. We need to know that. Show us how they are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now, what's significant about that quote is that James Montgomery Boyce heeded his own exhortation. Because later on, after that quote, he in fact did contract cancer. He was 61. In the year 2000, he received his diagnosis on Good Friday. And two hours later, he preached a sermon on the crucifixion of Christ. And eight weeks later, he died. And he informed his congregation. He told them his condition. And then he said this. He said, if God does something in your life, would you change it? If you'd change it, you'd only make it worse. The law of the clay jar. I mean, it gets our eyes opened about who we are. Gets our eyes opened about the ministry we do. Oh, but I'm not done. Because the law of the clay jar opens our eyes to the power of God, makes us realistic about who God is. You see, when Paul says we have this treasure in jars of clay, he's not saying God's power plus my weakness equals my power. That's not what he's saying, not at all. This is not, this, the, these verses are not about how jars of clay are transformed into jars of Kevlar. That's not the lesson. Paul's point is this, my weakness plus God's power equals God's power. That's the point. See, see, what's keeping that clay pot together? God. That thing should be pulverized by now. Why isn't it? God. God. That's why we can trust him. That's why we, that's why we, and, and that's why verse 13 says, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. Well, what does that mean? According to what is written, I believed and so I spoke. What's that? That is a quote from Psalm 116. Isn't it wonderful? See, you, you, can, you can go back and reference the very same verse that the Apostle Paul was thinking when he wrote here. He was thinking about Psalm 116, which is a psalm about how in a time of danger, the psalmist asserts he will not stop trusting God even in the storms. And so Psalm 116.10 says, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. So Paul says, I am not letting go of God when I'm hanging on that cross on Good Friday. Because Jesus didn't. He echoes that verse in his life. I believe. Paul said, you know, believe what? The cross. When I was in great need, Jesus lifted the load of my sin. 
put it on his life on the cross. And because God lifted Jesus from the grave, he will one day raise me as well. Knowing, verse 14, that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. And that very message, that very message is worth everything. And that's the reason for our gratitude. God's grace falls down so that our gratitude can rise. For it is all for your sake, all, all, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Well, you've got God's grace in your life right now. You've got God's grace in your clay jar if you know Jesus as your king. So what else ought we do than just rise and give him thanks? And I want to do that right now. Would you please stand? What do you, what do you give the God who has everything? You give him thanksgiving. You give him worship. Someone once said, it's a sign of mediocrity when you demonstrate gratitude with moderation. So don't hold back.